Well, in April 2005, uh, you were likely sitting on a couch at night watching the news. You were doing that because Hurricane Katrina had hit the Gulf Coast. Um, 175 mile an hour winds, Cat 5 hurricane just decimated Louisiana, decimated Mississippi and Alabama and Georgia um, and, and wrecked havoc. Um, you saw in the news over and over again in New Orleans, huge city, 70% of the city uh, underwater because of, because of the hurricane and broken levees. Um, but the epicenter of Hurricane Katrina was actually a little east of there. It was a little east of there, just inside of Mississippi, in a place um, called Bay St. Louis, Mississippi. It was the center of the storm, and the, and the uh, destruction of Katrina hit hardest there. They say that um, the waters came in and went miles inland and then pulled everything out, and for over a week, the only aircraft that could get into the area was a, a NASA aircraft to drop off people and supplies to try to help care for people. There was total destruction in Bay St. Louis, Mississippi. And yet, um, God's church rose up. Um, you had church, churches in Bay St. Louis that over the course of the next two years brought in people from outside to care for the needs, to really renew and restore that community physically and spiritually. At the time, I was a youth pastor in Houston, and I remember getting a call from a friend who said, man, this would be a great opportunity for you to take your high school kids and, and minister and care for people in and through the storm. And so we got the information. We went, um, took 25, 30 kids with us, and uh, went down to Bay St. Louis when we could finally get in. And it was a neat opportunity to really be a part of a church that was trying to restore their community, both physically and spiritually. And so our kids would uh, kind of make the Home Depot sheds because at that point, FEMA had given trailers to most people um, in the area, but they had nowhere to put their stuff. And so we'd build those Home Depot sheds so that they could put their belongings in. And we got great opportunities to talk with kids and, and uh, families about the gospel. Um, in Bay St. Louis. We did the second year, we came back. And it was neat to see all that had changed in the second year. There was still a lot of work to do, but God had used the church in Bay St. Louis to help rebuild a community. And God was doing his work in and through his church as he does, because God is a God who restores. God's a God who restores. He's in the restoration business. This is what we see all the way through the story of the Bible from beginning to end, that there's creation and then there's fall and then at the cross and redemption that God is reconciling for himself a people. And then in the end, we see a new heavens and a new earth. And so God is in the restoration business. Today, I want to show you a God who sticks around, a God who doesn't leave us hanging, a God who cares for his people, and a God who asks his people to wait, but all the great purposes that come out of waiting. Maybe you're experiencing those purposes right now. And then what is our right response to God's deliverance, to God's salvation out of judgment? We're going to see Noah, and we're going to see how he responds to that today. So turn with me to Genesis chapter 8. Uh, last week, we were in Genesis 6 and 7, and we saw uh, the beginning of the flood, and we saw uh, really decreation and, and how the flood rose up. And today we're going to see the flood subside, and we're going to see a recreation. Um, so Genesis chapter 8, and as you turn there, just remember, um, we've gone through s seven chapters of Genesis at this point. We saw God 
uh, create the world out of nothing by the word of his power. You see his power there. Um, and then we see uh, the fall in chapter 3. We see the fall of man and the consequences to the earth as well as the consequences to the human race. And from chapter 3 all the way to chapter 6, what we're seeing is just the moral decay of man. That's summarized in chapter 6, verse 5, as we looked at last week, summarized with God's assessment of humankind and saying that all the thoughts and intentions of his heart were on evil continuously. That's a rough statement. That's a rough summary statement about the world. And so a just God judges the earth and he brings a global flood on the earth. And about 175 days have gone by since the beginning of the flood where God said, Noah, get in the ark. And so we pick it up in chapter And I want you to notice some things. We're going to walk step by step a little bit through this passage, but I want you to notice some things. I want you to notice how this chapter mirrors the previous chapter. You're going to see notes through there that mirror the previous chapter. For you theology nerds, I'll probably post something on Facebook so you can see how it mirrors the previous uh, passage um, for you. But uh, I also want you to see some other things. I want you to see the language in this chapter and how it also mirrors the creation in Genesis 1. And then I want you to notice um, who initiates. I want you to notice God initiating with Noah, God initiating through this chapter. And then I want you to notice Noah's response. And so think about those things as we're walking through this chapter today. Man, there's some striking applicational truths Um here today. Um, God, uh, His Word never surprises me as we think about the the place and the season we're in right now, uh, sitting at home, kind of on lockdown, uh, stay at home through COVID-19 and what we're dealing with with a virus. But there are some incredibly applicative truths for our lives in and through this. So I want you to see some of that today. I love God's Word because it's always applicable and it's always providential where we come to it. And so I'm really excited about taking you through this passage and drawing out some great truths for our lives right now as you sit at home, maybe worried, maybe fearful about the future, maybe worried about your health, maybe worried about the economy. Um, There are some great truths in this text for us today. I hope you will dive in. I hope you'll stay with us and um, receive what God wants to do today through His Spirit. Um, The first thing I would tell you um, as I look at chapter 8 from verses 1 and 2, look at verses 1 and 2. It says this. It says, But God remembered Noah and all the beasts and all the livestock that were with him in the ark. And God made a wind blow over the earth, and the waters subsided. The water's coming down a little bit. The foundations of the deep and the windows of the heavens were closed. The rain from the heavens was restrained, verses 1 and 2. Here's what I think you see in verses 1 and 2. I think you see this, this great truth that you need to remember, that you need to hold on to right now, that God never forgets. He never forgets or forsakes his people. Look back at verse 1 there. It says, God remembered Noah. Listen, God hadn't forgotten about Noah. God doesn't forget about his people. You know, I I got a text the other day from a a friend that I hadn't talked to in a couple of years. And he said, man, I was just thinking about you. hadn't thought about you in a long time, but I want to reach out and see how you're doing. That's not what's going on here. God has not turned um, his gaze away from Noah in this passage. He knows exactly where, is, where, where Noah is at. It's just interesting when you look in, in Genesis and you look in the Bible on, with phrases like this that said, God remembered. If you fast forward just a little bit, you're going to see Lot. Remember Lot? He was the guy in Sodom and Gomorrah, and he's a guy that Abram was trying to get out. And the Bible says, God uh, remembered Lot. 
God remembered Lot and he pulled him out of Gomorrah. You get to chapter 30 and, and remember Rachel. And Rachel was, couldn't conceive and the Bible says God remembered Rachel and then um, opened her womb. And then you get to the book of Exodus, which Moses co-authors with, with God and you get to Exodus and it says when, when, the, when the Israelites were going... Um, they were in slavery and they were going through all that they were going through. The Bible says that God remembered Israel. And what does he do? He acts. He delivers them from the hand of Pharaoh. So God remembering means this. God remembering means that God is about to do something. God is about to act. And this is what you see. You see him doing it in verse, the second part of verse 1. God remembered Noah, all the beasts and the livestock. And then it says what? And God made a wind blow over the earth. God is initiating action. God is shutting off the spigot of the flood. Do you notice something? You notice something really about God in, the, in this passage and the previous couple of passages related to Noah and related to this flood. You can't miss it. Noah is chosen by God in chapter 5. In chapter 6, you see God show him favor. That means grace, that he pulls him up out of the pit. And so it wasn't Noah's goodness. In chapter 6 and 7, when you see the flood, who initiates the flood? God's the one. God's the one that opens the floodgates of the deep and opens the floodgates of the heaven and brings rain, which hadn't happened on the earth yet. He's the one who initiates the flood. He calls, God calls the, the animals into the ark. Noah, Noah didn't go have to go out and get those animals. They came into the ark at God's call. And then you see God doing what? You see God shutting the doors of the ark and the flood coming. You see God's initiative all the way through this chapter, and he also shuts the spigot down, and he says, I'm going to stop the flood in verse 2. So God never forgets, and he never forsakes his people, but he, what he does for us is that he acts on our behalf. That's what you see in this passage. This truth would remind Israel. Remember, Moses... Um, is, is his primary audience that he's looking at is Israel. And they're wandering in the wilderness. You've got the old generation that is kind of dying off, and you've got the new generation that's about to come into the promised land. And so it's a great reminder to them who have been wandering and wondering about God. Is he really there? Does he really care that God never forgets his people? He never forsakes his people, but he acts on their behalf. What a great truth that was for Israel. What a great truth that is right now for you and me. God has you. He's got you through this storm that we're in right now. And you can take that to the bank. I heard a great quote this week. God is not asleep in trials. He's actually trying to get us to wake up. So God's not asleep. He's trying to get us to wake up through these trials. And so let me ask you the, a few questions. In what ways has this virus woken you up? In what ways has it woken you up to God? Um, maybe um, another question might be, what has this virus exposed in you? I grew up and we would go fishing. We would go fishing at numerous places. And I don't know if you've ever gone fishing or out on the lake or on the water and go, I wonder how deep it is. I wonder how far down it goes. I wonder what's under there. And I remember as a kid, just the blessing of being able to go fishing. A lot of people are going fishing right now because they don't have anything else to do. So went to Academy the other day and all the fishing poles are bought up, seeing kids fishing. Uh, great thing. But I remember as a kid, we would go fishing on our land at, at the tank. And it, I would always wonder, I wonder what it's like under that water. Well, one day, 
we had the unfortunate thing happen where the windmill shut down and it was in the middle of summer and uh, the tank dried up. And that was really bad. That was a really bad thing to happen because our cattle needed something to drink. Um, that ruined my fishing hole. Um, and so it was a really awful situation uh, for my dad as a, as a rancher. But there's some really good things that came out of it. For me, I remember going back down with my dad and, and looking at what I never could see. Now, the, uh, now is it now all the things underneath that water were exposed. And I remember looking down and, and seeing these logs and about four lures on the log that I could reclaim. But I remember my dad saying, okay, we're gonna clean this out. We have the opportunity for the next week or so before the windmill gets fixed to clean out the tank. And so we would take logs and debris and pull it out. He brought in a front end loader and we would dig it out further so that it would be deeper and better but we, I would have never seen what was underneath if that trouble wouldn't have come. And I think our lives are like that as well. We're in a time where this thing that's happening right now is really exposing some things in our lives that were way down deep that we never maybe even knew that were there. Maybe the fears that we have or insecurities that we have, the concerns we have about wellness and economy, but those are down there. And what this does for us is it exposes those things and it gives us an opportunity to learn and grow so that when the water comes back, if you will, um, that it's a different place. Um, and so what has this virus exposed in your heart? What has it exposed in my heart? Those are great questions that we ought to ask ourselves, remembering that God never forgets or forsakes his people. Well, as we keep looking at this text, um, it's easy to read a narrative passage like this and miss uh, kind of chronology or time, how much time has elapsed. And it often causes us to make some interesting uh, applications to passages or, or forget how much time has elapsed. But Moses does something interesting here that he doesn't often do. The, the issue of time, he really tries to bring out. And so I want to skim through verses 3 through 14. I want to I show you how long, <laughs> how long Moses is waiting for this water to go down. So think for a minute, put yourself in, in, in Noah's shoes. Put yourself in his shoes. He's been in the ark at this point for 175 days. I want you to think about what that would be like. You're in the ark for 175 days. Who are you in the ark with? You're in the ark with your wife. You're also in the ark with your sons and their wives. Let me ask you a question. How long, some of you know this about your families, how long are you willing to, to stay at somebody's house? Like your brother's house and his wife and his kids. How, how long are you willing to do that? Noah is in the ark at this point, 175 days with his family. That would have been interesting and fun. But there's also something else. There's a bunch of animals in the ark. A bunch of animals that Noah's got to take care of and his family has to take care of in the ark. And it, there doesn't look like in the architectural plans that we have of the ark, it doesn't look like there's very much ventilation. There can't be very much ventilation if they're being protected um, from the flood. And it looks like there's a little spot on the very top where uh, there is ventilation, if you will. Can you imagine? I mean, what do animals do? They eat and they stink. That's what's happening. So for 175 days, he's cooped up in an ark with his family, going through a flood with animals. This is a stinky place. This is a hard place to be. So as you think about how long you've been stuck at home and all the challenges that that has brought, I want you to just think about Noah here and what he's had to go through. 
in that. But we pick it up in, in verse 3 here, and it says this. It says that at the end of another 150 days, okay, so this is simple math here. We're, we're doing over three, 300 days here. Um, the waters had abated some. And in the seventh month, and notice how much Moses is talking about time. So he, he tells us where we're at. The 17th day of the month, verse 4, the ark came to rest on Mount Ararat. So it's come down, the water has come down um, to Mount Ararat. And the waters continue to abate. So slow process is continuing to come down until the 10th month. That's two and a half months later. So they're still, they've come to land. They're on Mount Ararat, which is if it's the same today, it's about 17,000 feet above sea level. And it continues to abate for a couple more, a month, two and a half more months. And then they can finally see the tops of the mountains. And I don't know about you, but like for the adrenaline junkie that, that's going through the flood, you're looking back and you're going, maybe I wish we were still going through that because now all I'm doing is watching water go down slowly. Now I can see the tops of the mountains. I imagine they had a party when they could finally see the tops of the other mountains. But look how slow this is. Moses is pointing this out. And at the end of 40 days, Noah opened the window of the ark that he had made, verse 6, and sent forth a raven. What do ravens do? Ravens eat about anything. They eat anything dead or alive. So he sends out a raven. And the idea is, is, is to see how habitable the place below him is, to know where we're at in this process, how far we're in. It went to and fro from the waters that were dried up from the earth. And then he sends a dove. A dove has a more particular diet. A dove will eat leaves or seed, but a dove has more particular diet. He's not gonna, a dove's not going to eat dead things. Two, look at it, see if the waters had subsided from the face of the ground. But the dove found no place to rest her foot. She returned to him in the ark, for the waters were still still on the face of the whole earth. So he put out his hand and took her and brought her into the ark with him. He waited, verse 10, here's more waiting, waited another seven days. And again he sent forth the dove. And the dove came back to him in the evening. In her mouth was a, flesh, uh, a freshly plucked olive leaf. Uh, and so now you see an earth that's becoming more habitable. Bring back a leaf from an olive tree. You know, it's interesting, just a side note, just a side nugget, when, when you think about peace, uh, you think about the objects of a dove and an olive leaf. It's interesting. So Noah knew that the water subsided from the earth. But look, there's more waiting. Verse 12, and then he waited another seven days. We're kind of thinking, okay, when are we going to get out of this? When are we going to get out of the ark? Verse 13, 600th year, first month, first day of the month. So he's given you more dates. The water had dried from the earth. That's another month. And Noah moved the covering of the ark. So this is the second thing he's taken off the, off the ark. He's got more ventilation now. That's a good thing. And the face of the ground was dry. Verse 14, in the second month, he's giving more dates. Through verse 14, in the second month, on the 27th day of the month, the earth had dried out. Then God said to Noah, go out from the ark. So listen, 375 days from when they first got into the ark until they get out. That is a lot, C3. That is a lot of waiting. Here's your point. Your point is this. We wait by faith. We wait by faith on God's Word. Look at verse 15. He's waiting by faith on what? Verse 15 says, Then God said to Noah, Get out of the ark. We don't know how long, if Noah and God were talking all the way through the flood, 
But what's recorded is the last time we have recorded that God talked to Noah was back in chapter 7, verse 1, where he says, get on the ark. And so it's interesting because we, what Noah is doing is that he is waiting by faith on God's word. He's waiting for God to tell him when he can get out. This is what we see in Scripture. So like Noah, like Noah C3, we wait by faith on God's word. We read earlier this morning, as we began, we read Psalm 130. Verse, and, and, and if you hone in on verses 5 and 6, look at it. Verse 5 and 6 in Psalm 130. Let me go there and let me show you this. Um, verse 5 and 6 say this. I wait for the Lord, my soul waits, and in His word I hope. Look at this, my soul waits for the Lord more than the watchman in the morning. And then he repeats it, more than the watchman in the morning. Here's what the psalmist is saying. The watchman in the morning is the guy who keeps watch. He's the security guy. He keeps watch to make sure no harm comes to him or the people he's guarding. And so what the psalmist is doing, he's saying, man, that's a really important task to be the watchman, to have self-security so that no harm comes to me. No harm comes to the people that I'm protecting. But guess what? What's more important than your own self-protection is that you wait upon the Lord, that you hope in His Word. And so C3, as you think about uh, the mask that you're wearing rightfully, as you think about the prepper kit that you have, and you think about the ways in which you're trying to care for you and your family, uh, those are right and good things. But the biggest thing we need to be doing right now in time of trouble in and through the storm is waiting is waiting by faith on God's Word. And I think the interesting thing about it um, is this. Let's be honest. Waiting stinks. Waiting, is, waiting just stinks. And for Noah, that was a literal thing. It, he had to walk through the, the stench of uh, both the animals in the ark for the first half. and the second half, I just want you to imagine water coming down, death on the earth. I don't think this place was like Genesis 1 where it was perfect and beautiful. The flood had just come. And so you smell and see death and destruction all around you as the waters come down. So I just want you to understand the context in which Noah is having faith in God. But waiting is hard. Waiting stinks. Maybe as, as I think about where we're at in this passage, I, I think about this judgment. And I'm not trying to make a one-to-one -one ratio between a judgment and, and what we're going through right now necessarily, but we are kind of in the depth of the coronavirus. And we were, what are we doing? We're thinking, how much longer? How much longer do I have to wait until I can do this and that? How much longer until I get to go back to church? How much longer until I get to go into the office and see people and go places? Um, but waiting stinks. But here's the thing. Um, God wants to do something in waiting. You see it all the way through the Bible. You see it here. Here's the thing. God does his best work in our lives when we have to wait. That's when he does his best work. Not because there's a problem with his work. There's a problem with us. The problem with us is, is oftentimes we are prone to wander. And we need God to wake us up. And oftentimes, that means that we have to go through trouble. We have to go through trials and tribulations. And this often builds our faith and reminds us that we're not in control. It reminds us who God is and where He is and how He cares for us and how He walks with us. And so we wait by faith 
on God's word. But the reality is, is that we have it a little bit better than Noah, actually. If you want to think about it, we have it better than he does. We have the written word of God. We have this right here. We have the opportunity every day to hear from God. We don't have to wait. We can hear from God in his word. We can open up God's word in the morning, grab a cup of coffee, sit out on the back deck, and open his word and hear from God. We also have the word made flesh. We sit on the other side of history knowing Christ and knowing the rest that he brings through the storm, knowing his reconciliation. And then there's something else. We have the abiding Holy Spirit of God to walk with us and counsel us and care for us. What a grace it is to live in a day where we have God's Word accessible to us, where we have the Spirit of God abiding in us as believers, where we have the Word made flesh to lean upon. And so as we think about this, I would just ask you the question today. Are you spending time with the Lord? Are you spending time in His Word? Are you spending time listening and waiting on Him through the storm. I promise it's, it's the thing that you need more than your security, like the psalmist said. More than the watchman, you need to wait upon the Lord. Well, if you are cooped up, if you are cooped up for 375 days on an ark with a bunch of animals, with all your family and extended family, what would the first thing, uh, what would the first thing be that you would want to do when you got out? What would be the first thing you want to do? I want you to see what Noah does. After God delivers him from this judgment, look at verse 20 through 22. This is the first thing, the first response that Noah has. I don't know about you, but I, I would probably be looking around. Probably looking around at all the work that I have to do on this earth. I've got to build a house. I've got to build shelter. I've got to figure out how to feed the animals. I've got to do all these things. We bought a house in December, and I remember the first day, or even before we bought it, we we're thinking about buying it. I had a mental list in my mind, and then we bought it, and I have pages upon pages of things I want to do to fix it. I wonder what. Noah is going to do the first thing he does when he gets out in earth 2.0 that needs a lot of work is not do it is not work in that way the first thing he does as a recipient of God's grace here's your point recipients of God's grace respond in worship first thing he does look at it verse 20 then Noah built an altar to the Lord and took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man, for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I ever again strike down every living creature as I have done. Verse 22, while the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. Listen. Here's what you see in this passage. You see the first thing Noah doing is building an altar. Go to Leviticus 1, you're going to see this um, in the law. But this is even predates the law. The first thing he wants to do is take the animals, the clean animals, if you read about them in chapter 7, verse 2 and 3. These are the clean animals that he had. He didn't eat these animals. Um, actually, you don't, see, uh, you don't see people eating meat until after the flood. He had plants to eat. He reserved these animals. He kept these animals through the judgment so that he could sacrifice to his God, to please his God. And you see God's response. So you see a burnt offering, 
You see these clean animals, and it, and, and it looks like this is a pretty big offering. Moses, uh, Noah realizes some things. He realizes that by God's grace and His grace only that He's been delivered. And so He offers to God a sacrifice of praise. This is worship. The first thing Noah does here is stop and worship his God for what his God has done for him. And this is how we respond as people of grace who've been delivered by the blood of the cross and what Christ has done for us, that he bore our sins on his back, that he took our sins and the judgment of our sin on his back. And our response as his followers ought to be a life lived of worship. Um, and this is what you see in this text from Noah. What a man of faith who recognizes God is Lord. He is Lord and He is worthy to be worshipped. And notice something else in this passage. I, this is, I think, really important and you, you can easily miss it. But if you look at verse uh, 21, um, there's a pleasing aroma. That's just a way in which he uses human language to understand that God was pleased. He was satisfied with, with Noah's offering. The Lord said in his heart, I won't curse the ground because of man for his intention is evil from his youth. So here's what didn't happen through the flood. Noah's sin nature didn't magically change. God knew that Noah, while a righteous man, while a blameless man, meaning that he walked with God, he wasn't a perfect man. And we're going to see that in the next few weeks. We're going to see that Noah absolutely was not perfect. And so God knows that, that sin is going to repeat himself, itself, but he still shows grace. You see, recipients of God's grace respond and worship. And have we seen this before? Have we seen God's people worship before? If you go to chapter 4, remember chapter 4, we have a little data now so we can go back. In chapter 4, Cain kills Abel and God replaces Abel with, the line, with Seth, the appointed one, and you see his offspring. And what does the text say? At the end of chapter 4, it said, um, Seth and his family called upon the name of the Lord. They were worshipers. Listen, y'all, that's who we are. We're a people who worship. And the reality, uh, reality of life is this. We all worship something. We all worship something. It's not if we worship. It's just what or who we worship. And so you see a man here, Noah, who worships his God as a first response. He gives his first fruits to God. There's great application in this for us. What does that look like, though? What, what does it look like for you and I to worship God? What does it look like for us to be sacrificial? Well, I don't see it. I, I don't go out and take animals and offer burnt offerings anymore. That was Old Testament law. This is how they responded to God in the Old Testament. You also see in the New Testament, you see Jesus being the final sacrifice for sin. But the New Testament gives us some clues about how we worship. We certainly worship through song, and this is what we do when we come together. Um, our whole lives ought to be worship with the priority of letting Christ be Lord of our lives. And so we worship that way. When you come to Romans chapter 12, though, here's what you see. You see some worship, and you see some Old Testament imagery. So Romans chapter 12 uh, verse 1, we, we learn, by the mercies of God, remember this passage, by the mercies of God, offer your bodies, bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is what? This is your spiritual act of worship. So 
living sacrifices. You and I are called to be living sacrifices, not the sacrifices like the Old Testament that are killed, but living sacrifices. Your life and my life ought to be a living sacrifice. But you know the problem with a, with a living sacrifice? The problem with a living sacrifice is this. When you put a living sacrifice on the altar, it wants to crawl off. That's what you and I want to do when, when we think about serving others, when we think about laying down our life, when we think about taking up our cross and, and following Him and denying ourselves. We want to crawl off that altar. And so this is the challenge. This is the problem. But by the enabling of the Holy Spirit, God gives us an opportunity to worship Him by serving, and to worship Him by letting our lives be a living sacrifice. Listen, what days, what ways this week can you worship? What are all the ways that you can think of that you can worship? I'm trying to make this really tangible for you. To be a living sacrifice for your spouse, for your kids, for someone around you. To give up your life and your rights for others. To honor Christ. This is what Christ has done for us. This is the example that Christ has said. He's literally given his life for us. And we're called that to do that to others. So living sacrifices is the call for us. So God never forgets. Um, we wait by faith on his word and we respond. It's right for us to respond with worship, with the way that we live, to be living sacrifices for him. You know, I, I open by telling you the story uh, of Katrina and Bay St. Louis and this church, this church that um, decided that they were going to care for the physical needs, uh, the restorative needs for people um, and spiritual needs for them. What I didn't tell you is that this church planted after the storm. Right after the storm, a guy who was in a bigger church on the East Coast this was his home. This is where he grew up. And so he decided, that, and God called him back to Bay St. Louis, and he, and, and he planted a church, Lanyap Presbyterian Church. Lanyap Presbyterian Church to see the restoration and renewal of a community, both physically and spiritually. If you're Cajun, and I say the word Lanyap, you know what that means. See, the, Cajun have, the Cajuns have this word lanyap, and it means a little something extra, that you get a gift, that you, you, you don't deserve it. They just give you a little something extra. So maybe it's shrimp gumbo, maybe it's time, maybe it's a, a service, but the idea is grace. So think about that. This church formed out of a flood, bringing God's grace to restore a community. This is what God does. God is a God who restores He's a God who restores. Have you ever experienced God's lanyap? Have you ever experienced um, His lanyap, His grace? So you don't deserve it. You can't earn it. He freely gives it to you. And that's the gospel. That God put our sins on Christ. And He paid the penalty for your sin and my sin. That we might have life and be restored to God. That is God's grace. Listen. Um, next week, we're going to look at this promise. We're going to see that a promise that God will never flood the earth again with water. But I want to promise you something from God's Word. There will be another flood. There will be another flood. When the new heavens and the new earth come, there will be a flood of the glory of God that fills the earth like the water covers the sea, according to the prophet Habakkuk. But until that day, I long for that day where he remakes the world and this earth is filled with the glory of God. But until then, 
C3, until then, we, here's your takeaway, we worship while we wait, knowing that God is a God who restores. We worship while we wait, knowing God is a God who restores, and knowing that God is a God who will not forsake us. So we wait expectantly on Jesus. We wait expectantly, believing that He will make all things right. Let me pray. Father, we're thankful for your word. Thank you for the ways in which this passage this week is so applicable. Lord, your providence is real, that you know the time and the seasons. You know all things, and you work all things for your glory. So we thank you for your love for us. We thank you that you're a God who doesn't forget. You're a God who doesn't bail on us, but you are in the storm with us. We thank you that while it is tough to wait, You want to grow patience in us. You want to grow our faith while we wait on you. You want to remind us that we need you. We need to wait on you. We need to wait on your word. So Lord, through your spirit, do a work in us this week that we might seek you, that we might wait on you and find refreshment for our soul. In Jesus' name, amen.